the the magic of this book was my going back and finding him, finding everything I could about him. Uh, old letters, newspaper articles, memos, correspondence, screenplays. So I felt I was reconstructing someone I had lost. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of classic era films. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site about movies from the classic age from all around the world. She was a gorgeous star, famous for the tall, dark, and handsome character who fell for her. He was the screenwriter behind a director who defined the 1930s. And the story of their love is told by their daughter, Victoria Riskin, in her new book, Fay Ray and Robert Riskin, A Hollywood Memoir. Plus, preview the greatest silent film festival in the West, the San Francisco Silent Film Festival, presenting a new crop of discoveries and restorations in May. Looking for money and adventure and fame, the thrill of a lifetime and a long sea voyage? Well, until you find it, try subscribing to Nitrateville Radio at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And gee, it'd be swell if you left us a review and a rating at iTunes, too. Thanks. Carl Denham searched the world to bring back exciting pictures. And that's pretty much what they do every year at the San Francisco Silent Film Festival, a leading showcase for silent film discoveries, including many restorations that they play major roles in funding and accomplishing. It takes place in San Francisco's vintage picture palace, the Castro Theater, every spring. And to preview this year's festival, I spoke with artistic director Anita Manga and Rob Byrne, president of the festival's board of directors, and a guest way back in episode two of this podcast. I don't really know that much about the history of the festival, so maybe tell me, I mean, I think this is its 24th year, and yes. tell me just how it got started and all that. Uh, by two uh, devotees of silent cinema, uh, Melissa Chittick and Steve Salmon, a married couple, and they used to come around the Castro Theater and uh, hand out questionnaires, people waiting in in lines around the block for silent movies, because the caster had a mighty Wurlitzer, and so had regularly had um, silent movies with uh, organ accompaniment. And so they just had the idea that they they wanted to start a festival and, and really did it very methodically and it took them a long time, in fact, a little too long, but um, <laughs> but it was almost an instant success. So that was 24 years ago. And it's really become um, not just a place for showcasing silent films, but involved in helping rediscover them, restore them, all those kinds of things. Yeah, absolutely. A big part of our mission now is the preservation of 
of science. I mean, it always was one of the missions because it, it uh, I think the festival from the very beginning felt that one part of the preservation and restoration cycle was exhibition because how do you support the preservation of things that nobody ever gets to see? So, but then with Rob coming to to play, um, it, it, he, Rob was very instrumental in in turning it to actual uh, hands-on uh, restoration and preservation. And so Rob's been our itinerant restoration guy, working with all you know um, archives around the world to to restore films. Well, yeah, tell me some of the titles that, that you can claim some credit on. Oh, well, actually, quite a few. I think we've got about 20 features under our belt now and a number of shorts. Uh, probably some of the most notable ones are the, uh, the rediscovered 1916 Sherlock Holmes uh, starring William Gillette. Um, we, had, uh, we worked with the Cinematheque Francaise on the fairly recent restoration of um, two uh, Rene Flair films, Les Deux Timid and um, Italian, Straw Hat. Italian Straw Hat. Thank you. Uh-huh. And a couple years ago, uh, Behind the Door, the 1919 uh, war melodrama uh, by Irvin Willett. Uh, this year, we're bringing back to the screen Clarence Brown's Signal Tower, which I think is going to be a, a really special thing. It is a really special thing. It is a great film, and what I've seen, Rob, from your footage, it looks beautiful. I think that is going to be the revelation of the festival because it is so good and really quite unknown. I didn't really know anything about Signal Tower until Kevin. No, I don't think anybody knows. When I yeah. tell people we're working on it, they're yeah, they're they get a blank look, like, well, what's that? And uh, kind of like the blank look we used to get a couple of years ago when I told people we we were working on behind the door. Well, and, and I mean, there's a lot of uh, a lot of railroad melodramas in the silent era. What's particularly special about this one? Just that Clarence Brown made it, or? Well, I think there's a number of aspects. I mean, first of all, I mean, Clarence Brown had a very long career, but most of his silence have not been seen or just starting to be seen. And they're, uh, you know, they're all just gorgeous. There was The Goose Woman, Smoldering Fires, and now Signal Tower were three, one of the, the three uh, main films that he made in the silent era that really haven't been shown too much, uh, unfortunately. Um, you know, he went on to do you know, the yearling and National Velvet. He had a massive career. Um, but his talent really shows through from the very beginning. And uh, the, the, the sort of the skill, the building of suspense, the cinematography are all just first rate. It really boils out to an amazing crescendo at, at the end. Yeah, it's extraordinary. And for, for us, too, it has kind of a, a local angle because it was filmed on location north of San Francisco in the Mendocino um, Forest. And it's so obviously the location, it's very beautiful. What are some other, uh, you know, premieres this year that you think are, are especially strong? Well, I have to say, I, I, I always point out a couple of things that people might not know, um, but 
And I thank Rob for doing this. He went on a kind of world tour of looking in archives and found this wonderful film, Tonka of the Gallows, in the Czech archive. Um, and that we're showing, and I think a lot of people don't know. We're doing um, um, this amazing L'Homme de Large, uh, which is a, a 1920 French film, uh, which is also extremely unusual, um, jewel-colored tinting, um, beautiful, um, set on the Breton uh, coast. Um, that, I think, is going to end. And we're having, because the um, intertitles are so um, artful, we're not subtitling them, but actor Paul McGann, who was one of the Doctor Who's. Right. I don't know if you know him. But with Neil and I, is, sure. Yes, with Neil and I. And he is going to be voicing the intertitle. Um, and because it's based on Balzac, it's very poetic. So, And Paul is also going to be voicing, later that evening, uh, L'Inferno, um, which was the oldest Italian film, 1911, um, uh, based on Dante's Inferno. And it is wildly colored also and very beautiful. And we've taken the somewhat pedestrian um, English translation and um, gone to Robert Penske's beautiful Dante translation. So we're particularly proud of that. We pay a lot of attention to uh, translations and also the music. And that is going to be with the Matty Bai Ensemble doing L'Inferno. Um, Gunter Buchwald, who is a big um, uh, Breton music uh, expert, is going to be doing L'Homme de Large. Um, Tonka is by the amazing Stephen Horn. Um, God, what else is... Rob, please. Oh, we're opening the oh. festival with a uh, 4K restoration of the cameraman with uh, when we're going to be give, awarding the 2019 Silent Film Festival Award to Cineteca de Bologna. So that is their big restoration with the Criterion Collection and Warner Brothers. And uh, we're just looking forward to that as well as our one Buster Keaton wasn't enough, so we're closing the festival with uh, with Serge Bromberg Lobster Films restoration of Our Hospitality, which I saw Montalto is going to play for. Yes, indeed, and we love Montalto too. And for the opening night, where where um, Timothy Brock is coming from Italy to conduct his original score, and we have seventeen players, an orchestra of 17 players from the San Francisco Conservatory of Music. So that'll be, uh, it'll be brilliant. I mean, there's so much I can't even begin yeah. <laughs> to. I'm looking at the schedule thinking, you have to see Opium, you have to see The Homemaker, you have to see Japanese Girls at the Harbor, Shiraz. Yeah, you know, one of the things that really strikes me looking at the schedule is how seriously you take the accompaniment side. Um, you know, you've got 80% of the people I've ever heard of who do silent film accompaniment appearing uh-huh. there this year, uh-huh. it seems like. Uh, I saw Phil Carley is on there and, and various uh-huh. other people. And I think that that is so important. 
uh, to building and keeping an audience is making it as great an, uh, an experience of silent film as you can and not just, you know, the soundtrack is something to keep you from just hearing your neighbor munching his popcorn. Absolutely. We're, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very big part of our mission to bring these... I always think of it as a, a, like Shakespeare. Like people keep mounting Shakespeare plays and what we're doing is bringing text back to life and and helping people see things that they wouldn't be you can't do what we do at home essentially right. you know we're very careful about and very thoughtful about the musical accompaniment and picking people who we know can can respect the image and get the you know had to use an old word from the 60s, grok the, <laughs> the filmmaker's intention. Yeah. Now, I take it your audience is is cool with seeing European silence that they've never heard of or much heard of the people involved in them, and it's not just people going, why isn't there more Mary Pickford this year, or something like that? We are lucky to have a... Uh, San Francisco is a very sophisticated and interesting and adventurous audience, which we're lucky to be in that kind of city, but we found the opposite. People are looking for revelations. They, you know, something off the beaten track. And also, we work really hard to always have, um, you know, very select amazing things that people know they can trust us. They don't have to have heard of of something to know that there might be something. We're always looking at things that are have some relevance for modern audiences. And, and uh, what's your thought on that, Rob? No, I agree. I think that's exactly what, what I think are, what we really strive for. I mean, I think it is to show great films, and, it, and it's great films um, no matter where they came from or no matter what decade of the silent era they were made on. Um, and I, I also think sort of one of our missions is, as when we're a silent film festival, we are not the festival of American films made in the late 20s. I right. think <laughs> it's important that we represent the entire silent era, um, both from uh, a time perspective. The silent era was three decades long, but also from a geographic perspective. I mean, silent era... At the time, right, was uh, a magic machine that could transport audiences to places they'd never been or seen before. And I think we sort of continue that in a, in a certain way. I always think of the, uh, you know, Landmarks theaters always had that um, trailer that ran for years before films. And there was a woman with, I'm not sure what her accent was, but it's like, the language of cinema is yeah. universal. <laughs> I, I always think, yes, that's exactly right. Our cinema is universal, especially in the silent era, because things are condensed onto intertitles, which were easily translated into whatever language. You know, several years ago, we played a film that that was a Chinese film that was found in the Norwegian archive. <laughs> and it had, you know, they just like stuck in Norwegian intertitles. We, the silent, San Francisco Silent Film Festival, 
we're happy to facilitate actually making a good Chinese. We went back to trying to figure out, because the, the Norwegians had left the Chinese, they were often flipped and upside down on their intertidal cards, but we really spent a lot of time looking at the, what the Chinese was and then making a good English translation that didn't just come from the Norwegian that had been badly translated from the Chinese. So that's always fun to do. To Again, we're restoring things as close as we can to 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 the filmmaker's intention and and giving it a lot of respect and and um and hoping people relate it, well uh silentfilm.org yeah. it is uh check out the schedule it is i i mean I, again i'm looking at it and thinking there's so many things i didn't mention <laughs> like oh, the weird guna guna that we're doing uh, i didn't know uh, that one what, what is that about a film from bali uh that we're doing with a gamelan orchestra um you know shiraz the which just recently got a restoration from the bfi that we're doing with a a, a pianist utsav lal um, yeah, God, The Love of Jeanne, one of the m- most beautiful films by Pabst. This is from the uh, Murnau Stiftung, and, you know, it's lovely. It's really beautiful. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah, just peruse silentfilm.org and get your ticket to San Francisco May 1st through 5th. Yeah. <laughs> Don't miss the show. That's music by Maddie Bai from the Kino release of Sir Arne's Treasure. The 1919 Moritz Stiller film will be shown with accompaniment by the Maddie Bai Ensemble at this year's San Francisco Silent Film Festival, May 1st through 5th at the Castro Theater. The schedule and tickets are available now. Go to silentfilm.org or look for the link in the show post at nitrateville.com. It's horrible, Anne, but you can't look away. There's no chance for you, Anne. No escape. You're helpless, Anne. Helpless. There's just one chance. If you can scream, but your throat's paralyzed. Try to scream, Anne. Cry. Perhaps if you didn't see it, you could scream. Throw your arms across your eyes and scream, Anne. Scream for your life. Suppose that was your mom. And this was your dad. Not the actor, but the words. Proceed. Well... I don't know where to begin. There have been so many things said about me that I... About my playing the tuba. Seems like a lot of fuss has been made about that. If a man's crazy just because he plays the tuba, then somebody better look into it because there are a lot of tuba players running around loose. Of course, I don't see any harm in it. I play mine whenever I want to concentrate. That may sound funny to some people, but everybody does something silly when they're thinking. For instance, the judge here is, is an O-filler. 
A what? An O filler. You fill in all the spaces in the O's with your pencil. I was watching you. <laughs> it would be hard to think of anyone more quintessentially 1930s movies than Victoria Riskin's parents. The original scream queen of King Kong, an actress in dozens of other movies, Faye Ray, and Robert Riskin, the screenwriter who created the plots and dialogue that Frank Capra turned into some of the most memorable movies of the 1930s and early 1940s. In the first of two interviews devoted to new books about classic-era screenwriters, I talked to Ms. Riskin, herself an accomplished screenwriter, television producer, and human rights activist, about her memoir of her parents, Faye Ray and Robert Riskin, A Hollywood Memoir, out now from Pantheon Books. First of all, I... I want to thank you for answering the most pressing question, which is what you do on the playground when someone comes up to you and says, King Kong was in love with your mom. <laughs> that was probably the nicest thing somebody, the kids said, although it wasn't, it wasn't all that often, but it did happen and I didn't like it at all. Right. No kid wants attention, especially for their yeah. parents. Yeah. Yeah. Or to be teased. I didn't like to be, I was not a, the kind of kid who enjoyed t being teased, but I think it was pretty tame by today's standards. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's also interesting, I mean, uh, to be honest, I knew uh -huh. that your mother had been married to a screenwriter named John Monk Sand Saunders, but uh -huh. I did not know she had been married to Robert Riskin. So from, from the very cover, I am learning things about uh, all this. And a uh, very interesting story about... Uh, Life in Hollywood and a, and a and a starlet who and star who seemed to be attracted to writers in general. I mean, she's interested in Clifford Odets at one point and so on. So she was attracted to writers. She felt that they were the smartest, most interesting. Uh, they were the creators in her mind of the stories and the intellects and the uh, you know the they were they were. Well, not so much John Mock Saunders, but many of them were just brilliant, and they were wonderful to be around. Well, he was brilliant, but he was also troubled. But they were brilliant. She loved being around writers. She just felt they were on, they were on a pedestal in her mind. Yeah. Well, so it's interesting. I mean, you, for a certain amount of the book, it's a dual biography because their lives really don't uh, intersect that much, although they do cross paths a bit in Hollywood. Um, let's start with your mom. I mean, uh, Fay Ray, uh, really uh, reading reading the story of it, I mean, quite a you know, hard scrabble childhood that led her to Hollywood in an entirely too young an age. Um, but yeah, tell me, tell me about uh, how that shaped her in your mind. Well, you mean her hard scrabble childhood, how it shaped her, or coming to Hollywood? <laughs> well, either one. I mean, both of them. I mean, <laughs> Hollywood is Hollywood's kind of the Hail Mary play at the end of a of a you know rough raising. Well, she while she was born in Canada on a ranch in a very remote part of Alberta, Canada, um, that was pretty rough on, unto itself because it was terribly cold and isolated. And after a few years, her mother can't take it anymore, sort of has a, what we might call an old-fashioned nervous breakdown and ultimately packs up the family and they leave this wonderful ranch that her husband had built and they 
come to America back where uh, their families were from Utah. So they, they swing through Arizona and that's too rough for them, for my grandfather, my mother's father to make a living uh, and get a ranch going. And they end up in a little mining town called Lark, Utah, and I've been there. So I know that it was a small but rough town. It was uh, a little uh, hamlet to provide housing for the miners who worked in this big copper mine in the Kinnecott Mining Company uh, around the nearby. And um, that was very rough because they didn't have a lot of money and the kids were wild in the town and the miners a bit rough and and maybe even uh, seemingly crude and her mother tries to raise these children and give them some education and give them a sense of being special and um but she's she has she's a victorian character my mother's mother uh, who's a strong disciplinarian. And then ultimately the father leaves and they are left without anything. So they, my grandmother packs up the children and they move to Salt Lake City where relatives help them out. But they really have a very uh, tough existence even there because there was, again, enough food. And uh, one day my mother's older sister brings home a young photographer who had been educated in New York and who had traveled throughout Europe. And he's a very gifted photographer. And he says, uh, I think I can take Faye to Hollywood and get her into the movies. She had won a little uh, contest of selling newspapers and had done, a, and, the, and the prize was a screen test. And so she was at this great sense of herself being on film, even though it was probably no more than 20 seconds long. And uh, my grandmother says, all right, well, you take Faye. She was 14 years old and uh, she gets on a train with this young man and they come to Los Angeles. There were no cell phones. There were no, no, there were no phones, period. That was, and there was no way to communicate except by letter, which would take a month to get anywhere. So she, but she was very confident that it all would work out. She was very excited about it. Yeah, I mean, it's Mortensen proves to be an interesting character. Uh, you hear photographer and fourteen-year-old girl, and you know where this is leading. Uh, so there were some kind of uh, art nudes. It sounds like. Um, but on the whole, see, he seems to have been mostly honorable, uh, maybe straying one time in particular toward yeah, her. He, he crossed the line on one occasion. I don't think she really even, he touched her in a way that was inappropriate. And I don't think she really even understood in that moment that, that what was happening, except on later reflection. But for the most part, he was a wonderful mentor to her. He educated her about the great artists of Europe. He uh, picked her up after school. He made sure she got her top marks. Uh, and he, uh, he introduced her to people who might help her get little parts in the movies. He, he, had, he really cared for her very much. And she understood that, that it wasn't just some opportunistic thing he was doing at the same time 
that was very, uh, for a 14 year old child so far away from home, you know, it seems kind of extraordinary, uh, even by today's standards, uh, that um, this is what her life was. And she rather took to it. And he also, he had, he was very artistic. He did a lot of interesting uh, photographic work with masks. He, he did a lot of the masks in the Lon Chaney movies. Um, so he was very talented and she loved that about him. She manages to get into, I guess it's the Hal Roach studio first and starts building a career in silent pictures. So she had done a couple of little uh, parts in silent movies and then she decided that she would go to Hal Roach Studios. They were churning out all these wonderful little comedies. She goes to the head of production. She walks in and says, I would like to work here. And he looked at her and said, okay, I'll give you a six months contract. And now she's the primary breadwinner for her family. By now her mother and siblings follow her to California. They get a little house and uh, every day she gets in a car that her mother has uh, bought with her salary and she goes to work and she's the one making the money to take care of everybody i, I was not aware that hollywood was that easy that you could just show up a, at a studio and say uh i would like to work here and they say okay contract um, that's how it was <laughs> yeah she was pretty good on film. I've seen some of those little early films, and she's absolutely beguiling and interesting and poised. And you can see why they, you know, they kept giving her a little bit more to do, a little bit more to do. And then after Hal Roach, she's given a better contract to go and work at Universal Studios, where they were uh, casting her primarily in these two real westerns. And she uh, mostly had little starring roles in these funny little westerns. And then, uh, is it? I guess it's really uh, the wedding march where von Stroheim sees her. You, you tell a great story about how she sort of forces him to cast. Her. She knew these westerns weren't going to take her anywhere, even though she had been named what they call a wampus baby. I don't know if you know that term. I've heard from of how- that only because of her. Yeah. Yeah, so so these this the Western Association of Motion Picture Distributors or whatever it was would select like uh, ten young stars and then feature them in uh, in magazines and there was a big gala and it was sort of like uh, you know a debutante ball. Right. She wasn't that far, and but she felt that these westerns weren't really going to get her anywhere and that she should be in a really good movie and have a really good part up on the big screen like Lillian Gish or some of the great actresses of the era. And someone told her that Eric von Stroheim had been looking and not finding a young the young girl to cast in his next big epic film. Well, von Stroheim was this... Uh, Austrian uh, filmmaker who who looked like he was the head of an army. I mean, he was a very stern and imposing looking man who wore a monocle and shaved his head. And he's telling her the story of this Habsburg prince who uh, falls in love with a young peasant girl, but he is required for financial reasons because the royal family is almost destitute that he needs to marry 
the daughter of a very wealthy businessman to save to save the kingdom, as it were. Anyway, he's telling her this story of this wonderful love between the peasant girl and the prince, and he's pacing up and down, and then he comes to an end, and she's trying to show him, because she doesn't know what to say, just that she's her eyes are big, and she looks in, intently at him, interested in everything he's saying, and then he gets up and walks her to the door, and opens the door and says, well, goodbye, Mitzi. And Mitzi was the name of the character. And so she assumed that that meant he had given her the part and she burst into tears. She hugged him and said, oh, I promise I won't let you down. And here's this very stern von Stroheim who sort of melts and says, well, I guess I can work with you. And that's how <laughs> she got the part. Yeah. Uh, although later, as will become something of a refrain in her story, he puts the moves on her and she has to uh, turn him away. Yeah, so so there was a period of time when he said she could not come to the studio because they had these uh, so-called brothel scenes that they were uh, that they were filming, and she was too innocent and young, and she shouldn't be around. Well, she was miserable to be away from the the family, you know, making this movie together. And finally, she comes back, and as she walks into the onto the set, she says, oh, I missed you so much, I just, I love you, you know, and um, he got an idea that that was maybe a signal, and he put the moves on her, he pinned her, you know, and next time he found her alone against the wall, and she did not know what to do, well, who would know what to do, and he said, come to my dressing room, uh, and, uh, at such and such a time, and she just didn't show up. She just evaded it that way, and and he was very uh, cold to her for uh, a few days at least, and that made her very unhappy because she really did care about him and admire him. But he softened after a while and was well behaved for the rest of the filming. All right, so now let's uh, uh, change scenes to uh, New York and. Uh, Robert Riskin, growing up in kind of the classic uh, immigrant immigrant Jewish society of New York. Right. You have a kid who was first generation, um, born to two Jewish immigrants from Belarus. They they have uh, live on the lower. They land on the Lower East Side where he's born, uh, living above a liquor store, and. Uh, as and it's a very warm family, lots of humor a very kind of progressive uh, intellectual environment. But my grandfather, his father, he, he said, I never remember my father actually having a job. He, he was a uh, uh, tailor and also what they called a cutter. He cut out the suits, you know, and then somebody else would sew them. Anyway, he cobbled together a living and they ultimately went, moved to Brooklyn and in Brooklyn, that's where my father uh, used to sneak uh, into vaudeville on the weekends, going in the back door. The guy, whoever was at the door, would let him in. And he would write down the joke. He loved the jokes. He loved the stories. He was a natural, my father was a natural storyteller. So he wanted to learn the mechanics of all that. And he learned shorthand so he could take the note, notes as fast as he could possibly write. 
And uh, later he said, I, he said, I was still using those jokes 20 years later only <laughs> with a more sophisticated spin on them. But that was a, a great learning experience for him. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that uh, I had no idea of this, that he started in silent comedy um, and even as uh, a director um, at in the <laughs> early 20s, actually beating Capra, I guess, to directing silent comedies or doing it around the same time anyway. He did. And this was in Florida. He had two. two he was working in the garment business. Um, he was probably 17 and he was an office manager, which was. Uh, you know, who knows what that meant. Right. <laughs> and uh, his bosses had invested in these comedies and they asked him to look at them and he said, they're terrible and you'll never sell them. When, when they couldn't sell them, they sent, they sent him down to Florida and said, well, you go make them. And he did. He made over a hundred of these little comedies. Now, most of them are lost, but I have seen a couple of them. And not only did he write and direct them and produce them and distribute them, he even acted in a couple of them, at least the one that I saw. I was astounded. I saw it at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City, and I'm sitting there entertained by this funny little movie, and he is in the crowd, you know. So uh, it was a tremendous learning experience for him, but it, it was far more pro prolific than you would uh, you could ever imagine but he did everything you know it was just a, it was a great great learning experience all right so yeah and then uh he winds up uh writing for broadway and uh comes to hollywood because of a play about a amy semple mcpherson type called bless you sister and right. there's a great story about when he first arrives and Harry Cohn is eliciting opinions on that movie or on that idea for a movie. So he, he comes to, he, he gets a contract uh, to come to Columbia Studios and he arrives to this meeting late. And when he walks in, he hears someone in the room, this little guy telling the story of this movie. And he sort of recognizes it as his, his his play that he's written <laughs> and he said the guy was telling the story really badly and uh it was frank capra it was the first time they met because capra had been assigned to the to to be the director and uh so my harry cohen turns to my father and says what do you think of this story and you wrote you wrote the play and he said i'll tell you one thing I wrote and I produced that play and I nearly lost every penny I have. It, it will not it did not succeed as a play and it's going to fail as a movie. Well, Capper was really furious because he was very excited about making this movie. And um, so Cohen said, well, aren't you going to write the script? And he said, absolutely not. I will not write the screenplay. So my father's, uh, man who would become his best friend wrote the screenplay. It was called Miracle Woman with Barbara Stanwyck. And it's actually pretty good. But the problem, as he explained to both Capra and Cohn, was that it was a critical view of the commercializing of uh, religion. That the Amy Semple McPherson character is making a whole lot of money off of the vulnerabilities of the public and, and uh, commoditizing 
faith. And he said that's just a very tough view of religion. And, and people in America were pretty devoted to their religious orientations and their churches. So so he, he had a good instinct that the film would not do well, and it didn't do well. People, church groups, obviously were offended by it. But it's a very good little film, very good film. So that's the inauspicious beginning of the Capra Riskin partnership there uh, by not partnering up on the Miracle Woman. Um, but they soon do on other films. Uh, and you talk about uh, both Riskin and Capra in their own way kind of saved a project of Cones called American Madness. Right, right. Well, I discovered this in my research, but now you picture this, the heart of the Depression it's 1932. FDR is running for president. He is saying to the public, let's get money back into circulation. The Bank of America, then known as the Bank of Italy, was one of the few banks that would lend to the motion picture business. And if they didn't survive, the movie business wouldn't survive. And particularly Harry Cohen was aware of that because uh, Doc Giannini, one of the founders of the Bank of Italy, was on his board of directors. So he asked my father to write a script, a screenplay about a bank and a bank where the um, founders or the manager of the bank lends to people based on knowing who they are and their good character and not so much just on business relationships with the idea that if you lend to people in the community, they know you, they'll pay you back, you build relationships. And this was really the the philosophy of the Giannini's. They, they said, you know, we, we lend on character. So my father interviewed Giannini and delivered the screenplay and they brought a director in and within a week, the film was just not it wasn't working and they Harry Cohn fired the first director and then they brought another director on and he wasn't very good and Cohn find, fired him a week later and then he assigned Frank Capra who brought a kind of wonderful vitality and energy and uh, dynamism uh, visual dynamism to the the excellent screenplay that my father had written yeah and i think that you know that brings us to one of the persistent questions you know capra is famous for having taken credit for everything and there's the the possibly apocryphal story that uh one day riskin came into his office with a uh a stack of blank paper and said there put the capra touch on it and right, that, right. <laughs> that he he resented the idea that uh, everything he wrote sprang from from Capra's brow because he knew Capra couldn't really write. At the same time, you look at Riskin's films, and you know, with maybe the exception of the whole town's talking, which is John Ford. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Riskin's words were never better than when Capra was directing them. So um, I think that. That, yeah, I think that's exactly right. I really do. I think um, the, the 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 sum of the two of them was the two one and one added up to three. I mean, it was just a wonderful uh, partnership, and uh, I, I feel the same way about Capra's movies. Although some of his, have, like It's a Wonderful Life, 
people see every year. But I, I don't think it is as good as some of the Riskin Capra films. But that's just my opinion. I mean, everybody loves to watch it because it's a Christmas film. But I think, uh, and it's also much of what Capra did later after he was no longer partnered with Riskin was derivative of what Riskin and had created and they had done together. So um, I, you're absolutely right. I think it was a magical partnership. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, for me, the peak of Capra's career is Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. I mean, that's just pretty much a perfect film. Uh, so many wonderful character vignettes, and that's one of those things, you know, where you can say, well, yeah, Riskin created those characters, and Capra knew how to d direct them to get the most out of them. And you just see that throughout the film, and not least uh, with Gary Cooper. Um, and after that, I mean, when he's kind of the post-Riskin period for me, he's, he becomes more hysterical. I'm not really that fond of either Mr. Smith or Meet John Doe, because they just seem to be beating the point so hard by comparison. Well, actually, my dad did uh, Meet John Doe as well. Oh, he did? Um, okay, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, well, no, <laughs> maybe right, they're, but, they're both a little no. in extreme by that point. Well, I, that's partially true, because... By the time they do meet John Doe, it's, uh, they, they form a partnership around 1939, the, and they, make, they create their own company. Uh, Capra and Riskin create their own company. And the first film they do is Meet John Doe. Well, my father had just come back from Europe. Uh, Hitler was on the march. He had just invaded Poland. So the sense of angst about a demagogue and someone trying to divide the and polarize the public and manipulate the public for their own gain seems uh for a long time to me seemed maybe it was it was a little bit over overheated as a theme except today when you see the film again i just saw it this last weekend and with everything going on politically, where um, people are feeling um, polarized or uh, there's the attempt to divide and conquer <laughs> uh, for political gain, it suddenly seems extremely relevant. Uh, I, I, uh, I'm not a student of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, but I know there were real problems between the writer of that film and Capra. But there was not between my father and Capra for, for Meet John Doe. So it doesn't seem as overheated to me today. It's interesting you say it. I'll have to see it again. It's one of those things I saw a lot as a kid because it had fallen into the public domain by that point. So it was on TV a lot. And, yes. uh, you know, I kind of, it's one of those things I've, I saw so many times back then, I haven't seen it lately. So it would be interesting to see now and see how I feel about that. But I, I see the point you, that you're making. Yeah. All right. Well, let's cut back to Faye Ray now. Um, mm -hmm. She makes uh, a little picture called King Kong and another one called uh, The Most Dangerous Game uh, at RKO. So how was, how was her, her career going in, the, in this part of the 30s? So between 1933 and 1934, she made over 21 movies wow. uh, in, which, in which she starred. When she did King Kong um, at RKO, she did, um, at the, around the, you know, at the same time, she did The Most Dangerous Game. They would be 
working on the technical part of King Kong, and she would go on the, sometimes on the same set <coughs> to, to work on the most dangerous game. She was working nonstop. She was the busiest uh, actress in Hollywood at that time. And part of it was, uh, it was the depression. You just, and she again was supporting her entire family and her husband's family needed money too. So she was, uh, she was working constantly. Yeah. There's that moment where, uh, she tells, uh, she's let go by Paramount, I think. And she tells her mother, uh, that, uh, yeah, I'm going to have to cut your allowance. And mom says, I will sue you. Yeah. Her mother was pretty, <laughs> pretty tough. That was kind of shocking. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and there's another, another part that, uh, that I thought was really interesting. There's a moment with John Monk Saunders. He'd written a book called Single Lady, which is well-known now only because of the movie version of it, The Last Flight, which is a pretty strong picture of Lost Generation in Paris, uh, similar to The Sun Also Rises and things like that. But he had also wrote a play, or he sold the rights to the play, I forget which, uh, called Nikki. and. Right. Nikki was someone he had had an affair with while married to Feyre and in Europe. And Feyre ends up being cast as Nikki, which has got right. to be some sort of record for just <laughs> all around dissonance in your marriage. Watching, well, your, watching your wife play your mistress in your play. I think my mother was a very tolerant person because she put up with quite a bit. Yeah, he was a person of extremes. I, I don't know if he had... Um, a kind of bipolar disorder. I mean, he was, he drank a lot. He, to, to address his drinking, the doctors gave him something else that made him, that he became addicted to. And he ran off to Paris to have a, uh, begin his adventures to, to write a lost generation novel. And he had an affair with his French woman and he came back and he wrote the novel, sold it, and someone wanted to make a musical of it, and they and the lead actress wasn't working out. So he called my mother and said, will you please come and play the lead role? And she did. So through, there you are. <laughs> through gritted teeth, I wonder. But, uh, no, no, but I guess I she's a trooper. I don't think so. I think she felt, well, I think I can help him out. And um, I think she understood. Look, he had... He was a brilliant fellow, but he had he had weaknesses, and she just I think became very grown up very quickly, and kind of understood that he had problems, and she wasn't sure how to help him. And um, so uh, I, I don't think she ever felt angry towards him. I think she just felt at some point he was beyond help. <laughs> well, yeah, and that's a, that's a good point. I mean, how young she was when all this is going on. I mean, she's just in like her mid twenties as he's, you know, as, as Saunders is really sort of disintegrating personally. And she, and she's got, uh, just one daughter, I think. Or did they have more? Yeah. They just had the yeah, one they, daughter. They had one child. And I think it was after my sister was born that my mother said, Oh, I better get away from this guy because <clears throat> he was deteriorating. And, and not safe to be around, she felt. Uh, yeah, he, I mean, he wound up kidnapping her and disappearing with the daughter at one point, or actually twice, I guess, twice. Um, which is where another of the, the 
odd cameos in this story walks on, which is Wild Bill Donovan, usually credited as the man who founded what became the CIA. Uh, he turns up as, as her lawyer at one point. That's right. So he was a very, it was a top lawyer, tough guy in uh, New York City. And um, John Mock Saunders had, had uh, kidnapped um, their daughter and ends up in Virginia uh, where he had family and he checks into a hospital and he checks my sister into the hospital as well. And um, so my mother hires, when she finds out where they are, hires Wild Bill Donovan to come with her to the hospital and try to get uh, my my sister uh, back, which which he does. He he convinces John Monk Saunders that that they're going to just temporarily take Susan, my sister, to California. But of course, once they leave Virginia, then then um, Wild Bill Donovan. I keep saying Wild Bill, but that's what people <laughs> call. That's what everyone calls him. Yeah. Arranges for my mother to get custody, permanent custody of my sister in California, where it was easier. You know, was it, women didn't have the kinds of rights that you could just, well, they still struggle to have rights, but he was able to get custody uh, for my mother and um, and then also arranged for my mother to be divorced from, from John Saunders and she could move on with her life. So he played a very important role there. And then, of course, later on, my mother introduced my father to Donovan. And my father worked with Donovan at the Office of War Information. Yeah, let's talk about uh, your father's career, his activities outside his career, really, which is he's, he's involved in the growth of the labor unions, the Screenwriters Guild in Hollywood, and uh, then, as you say later, uh, winds up working for the government on propaganda films. Again, parallel with Capra, who's famous for the Why We Fight films, but uh, Riskin was involved with a number of, you know, very important and, at the time, widely known films trying to explain the war and what was going on to the public. But yeah, let's start with, uh, with the labor issues. So, the 1930s, mid-1930s is was really what I call the labor wars going on in Hollywood. People were working long, hard hours, actors were, and writers were under contract, and if the studio executive wanted to put his girlfriend's name on a screenplay, he would do it, and uh, there were lots of issues where people were, uh, you know, blacklisted, couldn't work at, if, if you're the studio chief where you were didn't like you, you wanted to get work elsewhere, you'd be blacklisted. Uh, there, there were a number of issues and um, they were trying to form a union. And the executives, uh, the owners of the studios were outraged that anyone would want to form a union and they they formed their own union. The studio had a union for writers. Now, who in goodness gracious would fall for that. But anyway, <laughs> uh, they, there was, it was a real showdown because as the Writers Guild was trying to pull together and get people to sign up and be members, the studios were saying to a bunch of the writers, you come back, you come over to our union and we'll give you a better, give you more money, we'll give you a better contract. And people needed money. And so suddenly there was a big exodus. 
and the uh, Screenwriters Guild uh, was just kind of collapsing and had to go underground for a while. But by the end of the 1930s, they, they pulled together and finally got a vote to form a union. All of that made much more uh, successful by the uh, national, uh, by the um, Roosevelt administration enacted a labor rights legislation that uh, allowed unions to form. And once that was uh, solidified by the Supreme Court, the unions all took off. And the Screen Actors Guild, which my mother was a founding member of, and uh, then eventually the Directors Guild. And I have to say that today, the unions in Hollywood are very strong. They still are. And you were the Uh, president of uh, the Writers Guild, I see. So uh, second generation in that. Right, right. I felt my forefathers, or actually my <laughs> father, had had worked had worked hard to uh, provide uh, the security of a union because it wasn't just uh, pulling together to protect against indignities, but forming a pension plan and a health fund and all kinds of things that that protect the well-being of writers. So I felt when I joined, when I became a writer, that I wanted to give back a little bit. Segwaying from what I was originally saying we were going to talk about. Now, one thing I noticed is that, uh, uh, I didn't realize this, but uh, your father directed one film in the late 30s. During that period when supposedly no screenwriters were ever allowed to direct, but there he is before Preston Sturges or even Garson Kanan. Uh, directing a movie with Grace Moore and Cary Grant called When You're in Love. Right, right. Well, actually, Harry Cohen really insisted that he do this. I mean, I think he didn't really want to do it, but uh, Harry Cohen just loved my dad and said, "You, I want you to direct this. And, he, and I think Harry Cohen had a crush on this Grace Moore. No one knows her today, but she right. was... <laughs> She was sort of an operetta star, opera star, who was very beautiful, and she comes to Hollywood, and several executives are fighting to have Grace Moore star in their pictures. I don't think she was a great actress, unfortunately, but anyway, uh, so so Harry Cohn says to my father, I want you to write this script, and then I want you to direct, uh, this is a film, and um, <clears throat> so... He he does, and uh, at one point he goes into Harry Cohn and says, "Get me another writer. This guy's no good." <laughs> he was frustrated. Story, but some of it was the pressure he felt to have scenes that really showed off her musical talent. Right. And some of the problem was that that Cary Grant was fairly new at, uh, in Hollywood at that time, and you sense that he didn't really like Grace Moore. And from what I understand, um, she was difficult, not just on this picture, but generally difficult. So um, there are some nice scenes, but it doesn't quite work as a, a total picture. So he was he was pretty much relieved to leave that part of it to Capra and other people at this point, it sounds like. He said, it's too confusing. I He says... Sometimes I'd have the hat on of the writer and I would argue with the director and then I'd put on my director's hat and argue with the writer and it was 
All right. So during the war, then he he joins the Office of Wartime Information. Important work during that time that he seems to have taken well to. So here was the question. Uh, first of all, it took a, a, a long time before uh, the motion picture industry said uh, we really have to be concerned about Hitler and Germany and what's going on. Uh, Warner Brothers were the first out of the out of the shoot, but others were slow to come to the table. The whole country was divided. People, on one hand, felt we'd been we'd been uh, tricked into World War One. It was devastating. We don't want to go to war again. Uh, it's not our problem. We're over here. They're over there. And there were others who said Hitler is such a severe menace, and he's pounding uh, England and invading Poland, and you know it, it, we have to be alarmed. The, the divide was intense. And um, so after Meet John Doe, my father went to England to help the English um, government try to persuade through radio broadcasts that my father did to persuade America that the English weren't so bad and they needed help and they were good people and they were like us. and. He doesn't say anything bad about Hitler, but you see, you you know, you know that um, England's being bombed. London Can Take It was a movie made by the English, but they made it look like an American documentary, and it turned the public opinion. It was hugely successful. <clears throat> it's not one that my father worked on, but he worked that same theme. And so he, he carried the theme that they initiated into his radio broadcast, basically saying, look at what they're enduring. Images were very powerful. And the American public began to say, yes, maybe we do need to get help the British. Of course, we didn't really do all that much until uh, Hitler declared war on America and after Pearl Harbor. And then, of course, everybody... It was all hands on deck. <clears throat> Which would be a problem for him later, that he was one of those who was investigated by the House on american Activities Committee for having been prematurely anti-fascist, you know, being, being against Hitler before it was proper to be against Hitler, apparently, uh, because that was assumed to indicate communist ties in some way. Yeah, so actually, well, the, the questioning of him about his affiliations happened during the war, not uh, not after the war when HUAC really was gearing up, but during the war, he was uh, brought before a civil service commission and they were giving him uh, his wartime title. He became a colonel. Uh, and so they said to him, aren't you a member of a communist uh, affiliated organization? The Screenwriters Guild. And um, our true member of the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League, which is that prematurely anti-fascist group, you know, they were a group of people who were Republicans and Democrats in Hollywood who were trying to alert the country to the dangers of Hitler. So, uh, but from the civil service, civil service point of view, these were all danger signs that he was part of the, the he had these affiliations. All right, so and in this same time, your parents got married. And, uh, uh, yeah, so tell me about uh, how they, they finally wind up with each other halfway through your book. 
Well, I think, I hope you feel when you read the book that you want them to get together. Yes. The, minute. <laughs> the suspense start. is killing. So the suspense is, yeah, and I think that's true. You really do grow to like these two people and and want them to, and you know they're going to find each other, but you're just not sure how. And uh, they finally uh, get together, literally, uh, um, right after Pearl Harbor, my dad comes back through New York City, and um, they had already met, and he'd fallen for her, but she was still involved with Clifford Odets. Now she's not with him, Odets anymore, and they find each other. And they find, I mean, it's as if the person they had been looking for all their lives, they finally find. And, um, and it's literally within days of Hitler declaring war on America. And they begin their relationship. And, and it takes a while before um, my mother's not quite sure what to do because she really loves this man and he has not proposed to her. She went to see a psychiatrist and said, I don't know, I, I can't figure this guy out. You know, He's wonderful. And the psychiatrist said, well, this is simple. Why don't you propose to him? And she said, well, I can't do that. Men are supposed to propose to the woman. And he said, well, maybe it's not going to work that way with your situation. Just why don't you ask him? And she did. And that's how it happened. Uh, he, he had stayed away from marriage. He had a kind of, um, I don't know, skepticism about the institution of marriage. And, um, but I think he felt she was the one. And they, he wanted to make a life with her. And she wanted to make a life with him. And so they did. Now, you come along after pretty much everything that we've talked about. And sadly, your father had a stroke when, when you were pretty small, um, mm -hmm. where your mom lived a long time uh, into her 90s. And so you, you knew her much better. Um, you know, how do you, how do you tell the story of that when you really know one parent so much more than the other? Well, I think the exciting thing about writing this book was that because I didn't know my father except for the memories that I had up until age five, uh, the happy memories of our family together and being with him, the, the magic of this book was my going back and finding him, finding everything I could about him, uh, old letters, newspaper articles, uh, uh, memos, correspondence, screenplays, um, in interviewing people. So I felt I was reconstructing someone I had lost and I wanted to do it accurately. I, I think, um, it's just taken a long time before I felt I had the emotional, um, fortitude or musculature to, to, uh, to look for him and find the, the real human being. And then once that began to happen, it was just, it was just wonderful. <clears throat> uh, and I, you know, I could find, I could hear his voice again. Many of the interviews in the newspapers, he was quoted or he gave long stories that were charming. And uh, so I could, I could rebuild the person. Um, and, and some significant detail I hope you found when you were reading it. With my mother, I felt it was more 
um, going another layer with her and understanding her growing up. She's she's written an, about it herself. So nothing I say is anything she was uncomfortable with me saying. And then my job with her was to to look another layer under under the story uh, and understand her even better and her circumstances. Did you feel like her memoir that she wrote is pretty accurate and frank about things? It's uh, it is. I mean, there were some little there were some small things that maybe she got a little bit wrong um, in that you know because when I circled back, I'd say, well, no, that meeting took place a year later or a year before, whatever it was. <clears throat> but those things are really inconsequential, and I I fix them in my telling. Um, but I she was an honest person. Um, uh, she was a, a lovely, kind, sparkly person, but she was a very straight person as well. As far as as the most famous other primate in her life, uh, she was happy with with being famous for King Kong forever. I think at first she thought, well, my goodness, I made all these movies, you know, over 100 movies, and everybody just remembers this one. But I think she came to understand that it was a film that became a, a, a classic in film history, and that in many ways it was a remarkable film uh, for its time, and it's been an enduring story, and she learned to be playful about it. You know, her, she used to say, <clears throat> every time I walk by the Empire State Building, I look up at the top and say a little prayer because a friend of mine died up there. She had all these little wonderful stories and ways of talking about Kong and making a friend. She wrote a letter to him in her own autobiography, which she says, I'm writing to you. I'm not sure where you are. I assume you're on Skull Island in retirement. And I don't have a zip code for you, so I hope this letter reaches you. You know, and and uh, my goodness, you meant so much in my life. I hope I meant something in your life. You know, she just found a way of taking the whole uh, myth yeah. and and having fun with it. And that was brilliant. That was just brilliant of her. Um, so that was kind of her nature. But I, I'm she loved many of the other films that she did and. And I've had a chance to look at a lot of them, and she's quite wonderful in many of them. And, and I don't blame her for feeling like, well, maybe every once in a while someone could see a film where I don't have an ape. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 All right. Well, we've come full circle to King Kong, so I think that's uh, that seems a good note to end on. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, this was really fun. I enjoyed the book and you know learned many things. Um, I say thank you for for having me and and I hope that if folks uh, want to read the book, I think they'll find that they're going to learn a lot about old Hollywood, but they'll also be um, drawn through the story by these two people and ultimately the 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 love story, even though it has some some tragic tragedy in my father's illness and death but there's so much goodness in it as well so goodness and love and and compelling stories of survival and and sparkle and moxie <laughs> well denim the airplane's got it oh no it wasn't the airplanes it was beauty killed the beast beauty killed the beast 
thanks to my guests, Anita Manga, Rob Byrne, and Victoria Riskin, and to Catherine Zuckerman at Penguin Random House. The link to Victoria Riskin's book will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Remember to subscribe at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, and to leave a rating or a review at iTunes to help other people find out about us too. Thanks. He sure is pixelated.